0: Humanistic psychology fundamentally renounced that worldview, but neither were we a tabula rasa, a blank, you know, something, blank slate. John Locke, you know, uh, we were, we came in pre-wired for growth, self-actualization, transcendence, transformation.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. You just heard from Michael Murphy. Michael is the co-founder of the Eslin Institute, a nonprofit American retreat center in Big Sur, California, which focuses on humanistic alternative education. Eslin really is a major catalyst in the transformation of humankind, and they focus really on integrating the body, mind, heart, and spirit and community and nurturing a relationship with the environment. In this episode, we talk about the history of the Eslin Institute roles that it's played in humanistic psychology, holistic wellness, and alternative medicine. Michael is, you know, well into his 90s, so it was an incredible opportunity to be able to sit with him virtually and talk about his experience growing up, founding the Esalen Institute, and how Esalen really was this catalyst for holistic wellness. Michael graduated from Stanford University and lived for a year and a half um, in an ashram in India. It was in 1962 when he started the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. During his 42-year involvement in the human potential movement, Michael and his work has been profiled in the New Yorker. He's been featured in many magazines and journals, and he's spoken at many conferences and other very important large events. Michael is very, very accomplished, and it was kind of mind-blowing to be able to have this conversation with him. He's also the author of four novels, one of which is called Golf in the Kingdom. And I had the opportunity to meet Michael almost over 10 years ago now, because my dad was working on the adaptation of Golf in the Kingdom into a film. So my mom and I flew out to Banded Dunes in Oregon and got to visit the set, and I got to meet Michael when I was just a kid. Obviously then I had no idea the incredible influence that he holds within the community of psychology and holistic wellness and politics but now it's just absolutely insane that I had the opportunity to talk with him, so I'm really excited for everyone to listen. You are all very much in for a treat with Michael during this episode, but before we get into it, I have a brief message from my sponsor, Anchor.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? Stella, it's wonderful to see you again after all these years. I uh, know.
1: It's been over a decade and now we're recording virtually, yeah. but the last time I saw you was at the Bandon Dunes golf course in, you know, on the West Coast for Golf in the Kingdom.
0: That's right. Your father was helping make a, a movie of my novel.
1: I have to I have to go back and I have to really sit with that and watch the film and read the book because now as I'm getting older, I'm sure there's just so many mind-breaking revelations I'm going to come to from hearing and seeing all of your wisdom adapted into a movie. But, you know, today we're here to talk about the Esalen Institute and how you've pioneered the human potential movement, which I'm not sure if a lot of people in my age group are that familiar of, but I'd love to start off by talking about the origin story of Esalen.
0: Okay. Um, well, first, I think, uh, Stella, we've got to be careful about using this term, the human potential movement. You know, uh, it's, um, it's a journalistic term, and journalists are forever trying to uh, arrange this messy world of ours into packages they can talk about. And sometimes it's easy to do. I mean, we can um, say the civil rights movement and it's pretty clear what that is. There's not much ambiguity. I mean, there can be all sorts of discussions about what, who started it, et cetera, et cetera. It's different with the Human Potential Movement. Um, so uh, we should be careful with that term. And in any case, Esalen started before there was anything called the Human Potential Movement. It was uh, on a beautiful piece of land that was owned by my family on the Big Sur coast, a couple of miles of coast, really. I had been introduced to a world view when I was an undergraduate at Stanford University, just a sophomore, that was largely shaped by an Indian teacher known commonly as Sri, S-R-I, Sri Aurobindo, generally considered the greatest Indian philosopher of the 20th century. He'd been an Indian independence leader, in jail by the British. Uh, And like Gandhi and like others, had this set of mystical experiences while in jail, but in any case he um, then um, developed a um, evolutionary world view. And for those of you listeners who um, want a little fancy theology, we could, um, uh, the term I often use, is evolutionary panentheism, where pantheism is used commonly in theology and philosophy for a worldview that says everything here, that our senses reveals, everything. Uh, That's God. Pantheism. Okay. Theism is the doctrine in most of the Judeo-Christian Islamic heritage that God's upstairs, and when we're kids, you know, he's an old man with a beard and uh, uh, telling us how to behave. And then if, as we grow in sophistication, um, it uh, morphs into a more sophisticated view, but in any case, divinity is located beyond the earth. That's theism. So you have pantheism and you have theism. Panentheism says that the divine is eternal. It, However it's named, God, Yahweh, Allah, you can say Brahman with the Indians. Uh, you can say some other name. But in any case, the divinity is what William James, the great the father of our psychology, uh, called the more, the transcendent more, but the divine is also in this world, that this world arises directly from the divine. So it's a both and, both beyond the world and within the world. That's the worldview with which I started Esalen. We also, I also and my partner wanted a place that was free from dogma and where it would, uh, no one could capture the flag. That a guru couldn't take over, but that we would start a global conversation about what, most basically, what's up, who are we, where are we going, and so forth. And so we invited, uh, you know, everybody's uh, that we could whose books we'd read. And here we were, both 30 years old, we had a field day. Uh, It was a fantastic coming together of minds exploring the most basic questions, and we were something new under the sun when we started. Uh, There were all sorts of seminar centers, you know, and retreat centers, but ours was open to a variety of viewpoints, and people came from different parts of the world. That's when we started. And a lot of amazing coincidences, synchronicities happened. We were now getting ready for our first programs. And I had um, bought a, a dozen copies of Abraham Maslow's Toward a Psychology of Being and passed them out to the staff. So one night, two months before our program started, in the dark, he and his wife drove down into our property not, no, they were looking for an inn. They were looking for an inn.
1: Abraham Maslow's, Abraham Abra- Maslow and his wife came yeah. to your property.
0: Yes, looking for a place to stay. <laughs> so um, later when we would discuss it, we they, they were a little they creeped out by it because um, it reminded them of the Bates Motel in Psycho. If you've ever seen the, the movie, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, Psycho. Here they were, dark, driving in there and lo and behold they get into a place where everybody's reading the book i had passed out a dozen copies of his book to the staff so i took this as an enormous sign from above that we were on the right path (laughs) and we became great friends now maslow's work the hierarchy of needs self-actualization peak experience. These are terms straight out of his thinking, his writing, and he, at that moment, was starting the Association of Humanistic Psychology and the Journal of Humanistic Psychology and launching a major uh, new movement um, in psychology they called the Third Force to go beyond psychoanalysis and behaviorism, the two great schools of psychology. For your listeners, and um, so Now, this is 1962, 1961, 62 as we were getting started. He was a first influence, and he brought a bridge for us from this Eastern thought that had inspired me. I was also inspired by William James and other Western thinkers, but uh, directly into the American Psychological Association, because a couple of years later, he, was, uh, he became president of the APA, and... Um, And there he was, before day one, with us. And this happened quite a bit. We had a wild but very exciting and happy birth. If you want to use a metaphor, it was like a rocket that went straight up. We became famous overnight, and we couldn't, uh, we had to program to match uh, the market. In other words, People wanted us, even though they didn't know we were going to come into being. We fit a need at that moment in 1962.
1: So let's pause before we get, you know, right into 1962 when Esalen essentially was blowing up. I want to go back to how Maslow is now emerging in humanistic psychology, breaking away from behaviorism and psychoanalysis that was previously existing. Can yeah. you can you talk a little bit about how humanistic psychology? was, you know, very integral to the foundation of Esalen and how that differs from the previous types of psychological theories that were out there. Right.
0: Well, we we came into it, uh, and virtually all the leaders, although we had psychoanalytically oriented people coming and behaviorists, B.F. Skinner came to us a few times. So in other words, these are, we... <laughs>
1: these are the people, just quick pause, that... Students are learning about in their psychology textbooks. Right, like, this is incredible. These are right. Maslow, Skinner, famous experiments that have been done. Yes. Classical, you know, conditioning, behavioral, operating conditioning. These are everything yes. that we've been learning in school. So to
0: ha- right.
1: have you know this firsthand experience,
0: right? And yeah, help
1: these, you know, that's insane,
0: Michael. I know. Uh, now, of course, uh, uh, Dick Price and I knew about these people. We'd uh, I'd had a B.A. in psychology at Stanford. Um, I did a couple of quarters at Stanford in um, graduate school in philosophy and then went to live in India for a year and a half at the Arbindo Ashram. So I was steeped in a lot of this stuff. But to get to be buddies with with the founders, the key people right from the get-go, you know, it was was something. So uh, now with humanistic psychology, what did we share? Um, First, that we're not Born rotten, like a lot of us have learned in church, original sin. Human psychology, uh, humanistic psychology, uh, fundamentally renounced that worldview. But neither were we a tabula rasa, a blank, you know, something. Blank slate. John Locke, you know. Uh, we were we came in pre-wired for growth, self-actualization, transcendence, transformation. So it was an evolutionary worldview. Now, if you want philosophers who carry this worldview one way or another, you can think of Teilhard de Chardin, Henri Bergson, who won the Nobel Prize, you know, and was famous for saying that the universe is a machine for the creation of gods. Or Alfred North Whitehead, I could go on. We all believed then there was a new worldview in the making, coming up over the horizon. Abe and I used to talk about this, that we were midwives to this giant new way of seeing this world that to this day, that worldview still is on the margins of academia, the media, although it pops in through myth and, say, science fiction, sometimes superheroes. You know, you can say there are premonitions of our next step in evolution all around us, but it's not what you're going to mainly learn in school. Our parents don't tell us, about these things typically. If you read the newspapers, if you watch the storming of the capital, you know, if you are engrossed in the everyday revelations of the media, this stuff gets shoved way over into the background and for a lot of people disappears entirely. In any case, Esselin was born to light a torch to keep this conversation the ideas around it, and mainly the practices by which we can actualize this. Now, going back to Maslow, its self-actualization implies there's something in us that wants to go forth into a greater life. There's a greater life, Stella, a greater life pressing to be born in us. But we have to learn more about it, and how to midwife it. So that's the basic idea behind Esalen uh, then and today, 60 years now. Um, and it's uh, still pressing to be born. So that's that's a quick summary of where we were and how we started.
1: A brief synopsis of the past 60 years in 10 minutes. <laughs> I love it. And you know, the goal, it seems, is to really promote these types of conversations yes. based off of the foundations of humanistic psychology and self-actualization and continuously going through that process of self-discovery. And so I would love for you to talk more about the types of activities that are offered at Eslin and how they really fit into that model of holistic wellness and integral yeah. wellness.
0: Well, we became then a great uh, a brokering house for all sorts of practices many of which we'd never heard of when we started. Now, I had lived in India for a year and a half in Aurobindo's ashram, and of course I knew about meditation. I was was a genuine religious nut in those days. I mean, I was meditating six to eight hours every day, and um, that started when I was 20, and now starting Esalen. By that time, I was 30. I was by then, and Dick Price, my partner, we we were equated with a a wide range of transformative practices, okay? But once we started inviting these high-powered teachers, uh, some were intellectuals, some were down on the ground somatics teachers and yoga teachers, etc., one person would lead to another. So now, for example, Fritz Perls, the, the Principal founder, really, of Gestalt Therapy. Not Gestalt Psychology, but Gestalt Therapy. Moved to Esalen and lived there on the property for five years. And from there, he launched hundreds of Gestalt therapists out into the world. And he brought someone named Ida Rolf. Now, maybe you've heard of rolfing, if you've heard of it. Um, It's a form of very deep massage Uh, and behind it was a philosophy, and it has now uh, spread around the world. Ida Rolf, when she came to Essendon, had trained one person. Uh, After five or six years, she trained 100 people. They started their own institute in Colorado, and it spread. The same with, uh, uh, maybe you don't know some of these people, but these were the founders of, of what has been called somatics, which is a name for a, a, an immense family of transformative practices that start with the, with the body itself, but implicitly, implicitly aim towards body, mind, heart, and soul. That was another guiding principle of Esalen. For me, it started with the Aurobindo, that we are obviously psychophysical, There's never a moment, Stella, when we're not both a body and an interior that we would say is a mind, a soul. It depends what your view is and what your experience is. But we are always psychophysical. And uh, in the beginning, uh, at the very beginning, another one who was right there at the beginning with us was Aldous Huxley. And he gave us the language of human potential, human potentialities. That, that language comes out of Huxley primarily. And he, what he had was this brilliant, lucid uh, writing. He was a world famous writer, essayist from English intellectual royalty. You know, His great uncle was Matthew Arnold, the great critic. His grandfather was Thomas Huxley, Charles Darwin's great you know, bulldog. And he came to Aslan, like Abe, before the program started. We have rooms and buildings on the property there named after Huxley and after Maslow. So he was writing a lot about the inescapability of our psychophysical nature. No matter how ascetic you are, no matter how phobic, how repressed, you're a body. And that body is having its life. And as Freud helped teach us, If you treat it badly, it will have its revenge on you, that body. That body wants to live. But many transformative practices, which are highly ascetic, beat the hell out of this body. And you can beat it up in very uh, subtle, mean ways. You don't have to just, you know, be like a religious ascetic and whip yourself or whatever. So the body came forward in these practices and the somatics teachers, people who were teaching us how to be better bodies, migrated toward esalen. So we brokered. We helped to broker that as a worldwide movement. We really were a prime catalyst, etc. Okay. The same with um, interaction, emotional interaction, personal interaction. We became a gathering place for... Uh, processes that broke loose from the medical we thought tyranny that said you have to do it this way or that way and of course you had these two great schools I mean here's psychoanalysis saying you do it here almost diametrically opposed to Skinner saying you know become a better pigeon and then operant conditioning and make a better pigeon out of you and it's kind of a essentially demeaning, but it's, but also an uh, operant condition can be very useful. If you, you, with all your uniqueness, are in charge of it, you know, you can have a helper rewarding you every time you have a good habit, so instead of a pigeon being given a, you know, a little breadcrumb, you know, to get a pigeon to change its behavior, you become your own pigeon and then you're reinforced. Well, of course, this doesn't satisfy a lot of people in terms of a worldview, obviously. But as a practice, it's interesting and it has its little place. By 1970, we uh, had been asked by the Ford Foundation to bring this stuff into education, kindergarten through 12th grade. And um, they gave us money for a pilot program. It was very successful where teachers came and experimented with using all these things we were bringing into focus in classrooms and then it uh, morphed into a major program at the University of California Santa Barbara f- funded by the uh, Ford Foundation and uh, eventually has led to but maybe 500 graduate degrees and has spread to 25 countries. Uh, people in Finland still talk about this. It was uh, a major attempt to broaden education to include and not only how we think, but our senses and our That
1: somatic awareness, essentially.
0: Yes, well, this whole multidimensional integral approach, body, okay, mind, heart, and soul. Um, So that broadening of the curriculum, now that's, you know, Teachers College at um, Columbia uh, was famous for that, and John Dewey. So again, it's America, once again, renewing its education. Now, I use that as an example because um, we've done this in a number of fields. eslin has been a broker of this set of ideas and practices. Let's start with medicine. Members of our staff were the first to write the first legislation in Congress that um, named something they called holistic health, uh, which has now morphed into wellness and um, Uh, health promotion and there are a lot of labels now and a lot of flags it flies under but then it was holistic health and we're talking now um the um late 60s early 70s um
1: and what was holistic health labeled as back then like what was that that, kind of legislation like
0: that was the first term uh, that was in the legislation holistic health and meaning the same thing body mind heart and soul um the integral, if you want to call it that. See, this language has slowly developed uh, in conjunction with the uh, expansion of these practices. Um, now, but, but they can fly under different flags. So in America, let's say, and in Europe, now all around the world, you have this explosion of practices. Uh, there's a huge Buddhist influence, mindfulness, you know. The Buddhists, more than anyone, brought us mindfulness. And it was translated by various people, um, you know, uh, John Cabot Zinn. Uh, he now it.
1: has a master class, John Cabot Zinn, on mindfulness and meditation.
0: Oh, you know, he's been hugely influential. And uh, there have been a number of people like that. And now, in the early days of Esalen, you know, Alan Watts, uh, again, was somebody we knew before we started the Institute. He was another one, like Maslow and like Huxley. So um, Alan Watts and um, D.T. Suzuki and others were bringing Zen into Esalen in the early 60s, before there was anything called a human potential movement. But That um, Asian influence has spread all around the world, too. So it's very much a global phenomenon. And Esalen being American, um, we were privilege to have this freedom, and particularly in California, you can get away with all sorts of things in California. So we had that freedom, and those influences were, um, I would have to say, coming from all over the world. So I like to argue very much that what we, for lack of a better name, we may call it the human potential movement, is essentially a global phenomenon, and Esalen's had a role, a catalytic role, for 60 years in it now.
1: Yeah, and I think you know it's it's very fascinating to hear how there's so many global perspectives that have helped shape the the foundation and the future of Esalen, but especially how the birth of Esalen actually arose out of counterculture, and in in that time period as well, back in you know in the '60s, I would say, and in California. So I think maybe people back then would have would think of Esalen as kind of like this hippie dippy place when you're exploring humanistic psychology and transcendentalism and meditation and yoga. But as now we, we've seen holistic wellness is super popular these days, right. it's almost kind of like a buzzword. And yes, right. the roots are pretty much the same, but I feel like it's also right. transformed and people are now more receptive to this idea of the body, yeah. mind, heart, and soul. Yeah.
0: That's very true. I I grew up in Salinas, California, you know, there uh, out on the West Coast. Uh, John Steinbeck was born there. My grandfather actually delivered John Steinbeck, and he he was like a a member of our extended family. And uh, believe me, when we started Esalen, there were no yoga schools in Salinas. But now, several yoga schools when I turned to all this, when I was just a sophomore at Stanford, it was a terrible shock to my family because I was supposed to be a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, and um, my brother was going to be a writer. The, uh, the role was assigned to us. And uh, when I flipped and became a certified religious nutcase, and uh, I, I, it, it was a devastating blow. And um, later, they became our greatest supporters. the fantastic i was so lucky with with the parents i had but you know back in 1950 what was then a culture shock is now widely accepted as you said you know wellness it's everywhere all these ads you know you can't you watch a super bowl you get a lesson in wellness it's a damnedest thing and but you know some of it is not particularly attractive but um Anyway, um.
1: well, you know, now my philosophy around wellness or what I've been learning more recently through this podcast and through conversations with people I've had is really understanding holistic wellness from the perspective on decision making and Ah. taking into factor the different aspects of your body, mind and soul and your heart and how that fits into one human being and what kinds of decisions can you make yeah. that are the best for you and for your overall well-being and health rather than hopping on the latest fitness trend or diet trend or those kind of buzzwordy type of things that are happening in yeah. you know in society and and pop culture around wellness but it really it's 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 more a philosophy rather than anything you may see in the media. And that's what I love about Esalen and the human potential movement and theory about human potentialities. And the goal of life ultimately is to maximize your human potential and what can you do to get there? And so one question I would love to ask you for especially for people my age, young adults is how can we get people interested in this concept around human potentialities, self-actualization, and what are some steps we can take to engage in this self-exploration. I know it's so much easier said than done. And oftentimes these things happen without you realizing it. It's more of an after the fact, you can reflect on those transformative experiences, but how can we get people excited?
0: Well, you know, it's uh, happening now uh, on many fronts. So uh, it's almost, uh, we don't need to push the river. The river is flowing. and, and, and it has many rivulets, many sources. First of all, there's an immense literature. Say you start with yoga, with the with these postures and these positions, and you're bound. Something opens up in you that will lead you to something else. At the very least, you will hear in your yoga class from someone else, oh, there's a better way to do this one. Uh, so we're prompted now. This is a, um, a culture-wide self-actualization process is underway. Uh, We've become contagious to one another in ways of growth, and we hardly recognize it. America is behind, and I think Europe too. But, you know, the most dramatic story out of Esalen in terms of cultural spread was our work with the Russians, you know.
1: Ending the Cold War.
0: (laughs) Well, we were the only place we had KGB and CIA guys together in those hot tubs. It's unbelievable. I mean, and... um, uh, Dulcie, you know, you remember right.
1: Dulce? Yes, uh, I do.
0: Has her own institute now, track two. It got spun out of Esalen. Esalen has spun off five or six other 501c3 institutes, uh, you know, the way Silicon Valley does it. So it goes on now, and it's morphed from just Russia to, well, say, Middle East, I mean, particularly in Israel, and um, Israelis and Palestinians Um You know, um, Esalen has had so many Jewish leaders. I mean, starting with uh, Maslow and Fritz Perls and everything else, and it's it's just the way the ball bounced, and that has led us often to Israel and um, people from Israel uh, coming to Esalen. So this teaches us how global this movement is. Now, with the Russians, it's particularly interesting because I went there first in 71, uh, this book, Psychic, Discovery, uh, uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. And we met these shamans and gurus over in Russia. And we conducted the first telepathy experiment between Moscow and, and the, the West. And the most famous telepathist in Russia was the um, receiver, and I was the sender. If you can believe this, 1971. And he actually got this stuff. We were standing... I, you know, um, either you have to believe this or not still, but in any case, one thing led to another. Here's the communist regime, which in, essentially says this is against the law. But underneath, all these experiments, seances, uh, and what they called hidden human reserves. It's the same as our idea of human potential. Hidden human reserves. And it was like the marriage of these two enormous nations with all these atomic weapons aimed at each other, as they still are today, uh, in spite of the end of the Cold War, we're still in this strange relationship. It's the most confounding thing in my life is that we haven't really solved this yet, gotten past this. Uh, these two overblown adolescent nations um, trying to, who's the toughest one on the block. It's a, it's a kind of, it's cultural ego uh, involved partly, and, all sorts of circumstances. Nevertheless, this taught us 40 years ago how deep this river runs. How deep this river runs. It's, it's everywhere. It's modern people trying to come to terms with the deepest questions of our existence. Who the hell are we anyway? I mean, where are we going? What about all these weird things that happen? These mystical experiences, in which we think we're outside our body, there's there's something new that happened uh, since Esslin started. uh, um, These near-death experiences, you know, because you know humans uh, until our century, uh, until the twentieth century, uh, couldn't come back from these um, some of these surgeries and some of the um, accidents. But we can resuscitate people now more than they ever could. And you come back and they've had this experience outside their body floating around looking and a big blockbuster book's coming out next month, Stella, called After. This is his 40 years being um, editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. Now, this is something new. They've collected, uh, well, tens of thousands of case studies. When you've had an out of, when you're up there floating around watching the surgery going on, And you've read about this, I'm sure. I mean, there are articles about this in Vanity Fair. I mean, you can find this stuff anywhere. And uh, so that's a big new something. And there are these new somethings that come online to disclose this river running under everything, but not yet fully described by major sociologists or cultural anthropologists or Historians. One of the best books is the book um, by our former chairman, my very, very close, deep friend, um, Jeff Kripel, called Esselen. It's a big book. It's in a class by itself, describing not only Esselen, Stella, but the larger context of it. And I would say that's the best account we've had yet of um, the big picture. We're all parts of this culture that's. Trying to give birth to its greater self, you know. But if you read the newspapers, you think we're going backwards. I mean, it's um, you know, on most days it doesn't look good, but um, nevertheless, you cannot keep it down.
1: There's no doubt that Eslin is really the, the catalyst and the cultural epicenter of these conversations and these talks, and really setting. The foundation for holistic wellness and the future of holistic medicine. So it's just mind blowing everything that you've done with Eslin everything that you've done in your teachings and your writings. And so it's an absolute honor, Michael, to have you on the podcast. And you know, I, my hope is that my generation can get excited about these questions and about this adopting this type of philosophy in life. And my my whole goal with Everyday Endorphins, you know, is sparking happiness in day to day. Endorphins are the happiness hormone that are released yeah. in your body. And so one question that I ask every guest that comes onto the podcast <laughs> is what is something that brings you a bit of endorphins every day?
0: Well, I have to, this, this might sound awfully self-serving, but uh, when I step on that Esalen property uh, without doing anything, I get a huge lift. Now I can explain that, that I would go down there as a kid and have happy times there, but it's much more than that. And so we've studied that and a lot of people have that feeling. Number one, breaking water. All of these waves, these big breakers come rolling in on the cliffs. Then you have the hot springs. So we can, if you just want to get endorphins for free, you go to a place that charges you up. It might be hiking in in the hills or the mountains. It might be going to the beach. Uh, It might be taking a shower. You know, a shower peps most people up. Why? Those negative ions are blowing off, you know, the water. And they naturally trigger endorphins. They do. Go take a good shower. Um, And, um, of course, one way is just uh, what I call prone yoga. Just lay down. To me, lying down is the surest sign of God's mercy. No matter how bad you feel, just lie down. Okay? Um, So, all these simple things we do, stretching, you know, all sorts of stretching actually releases endorphins. People don't know this. And that's why you do yoga. But you don't need to do yoga. Just learn to do a few simple stretches. Okay. Jogging now. I you know running was, became my number one sport for a long time. Now I, I walk. I'm ninety now, but I walk three miles a day at least.
1: Good for I, you, Michael. It's good to yeah. keep physically active, especially. Oh yeah, you're that, that's,
0: yeah. And even even if you can't walk, let's say you're in a wheelchair, do stretches. You can get your heart going. Be a body. Be a body.
1: Right. And, you know, creating space and through stretching and yoga, it's really, it creates space in your body and you're able to breathe into areas where there's tension. So, that,
0: so that's one way. Another right. is to call up a good friend. <laughs> call him up. Say hi. All I'm thinking of. Him, and get one laugh out of them. I guarantee you, you will have a door. Just get one laugh out of, for a friend. Tell him a joke, make a wisecrack, whatever. Or call up someone who's always going to get you to laugh. We know. I mean, there's certain happy people, you know. They seem to have an extra spigot of endorphins going. But you look at their behaviors, they all laugh a lot. Look to the happiest points in our common life, and you get a lot of clues to how to get your endorphins going. Um, It doesn't have to be some exotic yoga, although some of them really do work.
1: It's all the it's the small the small simple acts. It's all the little things, absolutely. And that's where, you know, the those and I think
0: it does help to fly under a flag uh that declares us to be secretly much more than we are, human potential or divine, and built for happiness.
1: I think this is all incredible advice that you've given Michael and I absolutely agree it's it's very much in the little things and definitely surrounding yourself in nature is a huge endorphin boost. Thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast. And it's just been an absolute honor to have you. I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing and everything that you've done. And hopefully, one day out of this COVID-19 pandemic. We can meet again in person and Big Sir and I can come visit Esalen, and I hope all my listeners are able to come and visit the property as well, because it's really incredible what you're doing with it.
0: Well, thank you, Stella.
1: Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please follow, rate, review Everyday Endorphins on whichever listening platform that you use to stream my episodes.